Good morning, church. It is very good to see you here this morning. Um, and I'm very honoured to be able to share the Word of God with you today. Um, I want to thank Ben and Beck and all the other musicians for leading us in worship. That is an awesome song. Like, seriously, if you didn't get anything else out of this service, but that song, my goodness, that it is an amazing thing that we can stand here as a church community and worship God. And just in that song, I was so moved. And there was a few words that stood out to me in that. It was the words, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And in those words, there's something that I hope, sometimes this is an interesting series that we're in, um, one straight from the heart. And so I have been somewhat struggling with this as to what what I'm going to share with you today. So those words sort of sum it up. I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes there's a theme or you sense what God is saying, but then actually to put it on paper and actually present it in a way that you can actually share with other people, that's sometimes the real difficult thing. Anyway, for those who don't know me, my name is Ben Nowak. I'm one of the elders here. I've been coming here for about five years now with my wife, Lauren, and we have three wonderful children. So we are in the middle of a sermon series, One from the Heart. I'll give you a very quick um, overview of where we've been up until this point. So week one, Claire, she shared, our hearts are in his hands. Week two, Steve shared on an unchanging God in a changing world. Then John shared, who are we really? Speaking about our identity in Christ. Then Nat shared about Jesus the real deal, talking about Jesus is the way. We've got the real deal. He is authentic and he's the one that has the answer to all life's life's problems. Then Craig shared on faithfulness and in true Craig style, sticking, showing, giving, which was all about committing to the work of Christ and of God. And then last week we had Church United where Mark shared about Jesus is worth it because he is king. And the heart of that message really was, in a nutshell, at times we praise God because of what he does, all the things he gives to us. But when you distill it down, at the end of the day, Jesus is worth it because he is king. He is Lord. He is creator. And if there was no other reason to worship him, that would be enough. Now, the title of my message this week is Building According to the Pattern. And by way of overview, what I want to do is initially have a time really just laying a scriptural basis for what the things that are on my heart. And we'll run through a few scriptures, then I'll get into an application in terms of some of the areas where I think this is most applicable at this time for us as a church. And then, um, then we'll, we'll, we'll bring it to a head. So if the guys at the projector could bring up the first, um, the PDF of our vision and mission. So as a church, our vision is to see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed. This was sort of worked through a number of years ago through the elders before I was an elder, but to actually try to get a bit of a handle on what we're doing as a church, where we're going... They work through what is our vision, what is our mission, what are our priorities, and 
that gives us some framework in terms of actually our decision-making as a church, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, and as we track into the future, what we're going to prioritise. Our mission as a church is to develop and equip passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel across the Adelaide Hills and beyond. And I love that. Like, there's so much there that... We are a church not about just being here for us, but we are a church about equipping and building people. We are here as a church to share the gospel across the Adelaide Hills. Our work here is not done, but we don't stop there. It goes beyond that. It goes far beyond that. And so our mission statement really does leave it wide open as to where, what God wants to do with us as a church. Now, the trick with all of this is, okay, it's one thing to have the vision and the mission written up on paper or, you know, clearly articulated. But the other thing is, what now? What now? So as a church, if we're going to see this vision um, move forward and we're going to see the mission come to pass, how does that happen? Now, in a corporate setting, normally what happens is it's sort of driven by the CEO or the executive and then they're sort of responsible to the board to actually implement that. But my suggestion to you today is that it's different in the church. I think there's certainly a place for leadership, absolutely, and there's endless you know, precedents in the scriptures with regards to that. But the key thing I want to sort of... proposition I want to put to you today is simply this. God has a plan for building and what he wants the future of your life, of your family's life, of the church and of the community to look like. There is a plan. It's not just random. It's not just chance. But if you could access the courts of heaven now, stand before the throne of God and say, what do you want me to do? God would have a plan, a clear, well-defined plan that could be put forward in a very clear way. Number two, that God actually wants us to understand that plan and then to actually build according to the pattern that he has, as opposed simply to our good ideas, certainly not according to our sinful nature or some of our worst tendencies, which can easily happen. We are all human. But God wants us to build the church, to build our lives, to have an interactions with the community according to his pattern and his plan and as he says in the lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven there is a plan there is a pattern that god has i'll jump straight into the scriptures so there's a handful but what i want to do is simply go through these scriptures let the scriptures speak i'll probably say a few words around each one um So, first of all, Genesis 1, verse 3. So, yeah, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to there or writing notes. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. It's at the beginning. (laughs) So, the scriptures start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. 
and there was light. And I find this a fascinating scripture in that at times you can think about the creation story almost beginning at the creation of light. But really it creates, God started by making, you know, stuff. I guess it's atoms, energy, the basic, almost like the building blocks of what he was going to work with from there. And then from there, then he said, light. And then as you track through the next days, he started to bring more order and more organisation and more design. Trees were, were made, you know, animals were built, you know, humans were built. But at the beginning, he had the basic stuff. And it describes the basic stuff, which is quite interesting, that God made stuff that was formless, empty, and described as being in darkness. And at times I think we can have a sense, and I'm sure we've all experienced this at some time, where our lives have felt formless, have felt empty, and felt like we are in the darkness. But all of us, or I think most of us here today could say we've also experienced that time when we've, we've sensed God's Spirit hovering over our lives in that emptiness. And out of that, God has brought order. God has brought life. Out of the formlessness, he's brought structure. Out of the emptiness, he's brought fullness. Out of the darkness, he brings light. Next scripture. Exodus 25, 1-9. Exodus chapter 25, 1-9. By way of context, so the Israelites have exited Egypt. They're in the desert and Moses has just gone to the top of Mount Sinai. Sinai. And this passage here really picks up on what God was speaking to Moses at this time. And in particular, God gave the law, but more than that, he wanted to create amongst, in their community, a place where God would be worshipped, but more than that, where his presence and his glory would reside amongst the Israelite people. So Exodus 25, 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil, and the light uh, for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for all the frag and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the uh, on the ephod and breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern. I will show you. So here we have it, this key point in history where God gave the law through Moses, but more than that, also established his presence amongst the Israelites. But there's a key thing here. He didn't simply say, make a tabernacle, you know, make a building. He said, make it exactly according to the pattern I show you. And we learn later in the book of Hebrews that in fact what Moses was seeing and what he was building was in fact a shadow of what was in fact in heaven. So it, does, it really does matter that what we build, that we don't just simply build 
according to our own designs or plans or schemes, but we build according to what God is saying, what God wants us to do, according to his pattern and his plan. And the promise there is that when we do, his glory will dwell among us. Okay, jump with me quickly to Amos uh, chapter 3, 7 to 8. Amos chapter 3, 7 to 8. So, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing, does nothing, without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? What I want to take out of this is that when God does stuff, God will always reveal it to prophets, prophetesses, his people, before it actually takes place. There is sort of, God will do this, but before that happens, God will reveal it to people. And there is a reason for that, because there is an interaction between the unfolding of God's will on the earth and the way that people conduct themselves. And that's really the whole overarching theme of Scripture, is the interaction between God's will and purpose, pattern and plan, being rolled out on the earth and how that actually interacts with humanity, with people and the decisions that we make. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, so jumping into the New Testament. So even with Jesus, he wasn't... Again, it's sort of, I don't know, sometimes I think we live in a certain frame of mind where we live so much in the here and now that we don't think beyond but even Jesus in his ministry he wasn't just living day by day he actually did have this perception and this understanding of the bigger vision of what he was all about in Hebrews 12 verse 2 it says let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In this we learn that Jesus knew that beyond the suffering he was going to endure on the cross, that there was something greater. And in this context, this is an encouragement to all of us, that as we go through life, as we serve God, even in times of suffering, there is a greater plan, there is a greater purpose. And I think whatever you're, whatever you're doing in life, or whatever you're experiencing right now, we can know that for the joy set before, fill in your own name. We endured, fill in your circumstances because we know there is a greater future and a greater hope. It's always worth it. Acts chapter 26, 14 to 19. Now I was unsure as to whether I should have so many scriptures but the thing is I really wanted to show you that there's an overarching theme throughout scripture that this is not just a, a one-off thing but it's sort of, it's all the way through. So Acts 26. So this is the Apostle Paul. He has, um, as we, we know his story, that he was, you know, a, a terrible guy, persecuting the Christians, actively perse persecuting them and killing them. And I want to pick up the story that after he, he'd been arrested in Jerusalem, then they'd actually quickly um, moved him onto Caesarea, basically to save his life because there was a plot to kill him, assassinate him. 
And then there's actually a real concentrated bit within the book of Acts where they give a quite a lot, a lot of detail about him standing before the Roman authorities at this point. So he's, Paul is standing before King Agrippa, who was um, related to King Herod, uh, if you look back through the generations. So Paul is telling his testimony, we'll pick up at uh, verse 14. So Paul says, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand up to your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a witness, a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And what I love about this is that we see that in Paul's conversion, it wasn't simply that he gave his life to Jesus and then just carried on as a tanner or as um, you know, a, a rabbi in the sort of sense of what he was doing and sort of following Jesus on the side. But at the point of him experiencing Jesus, having met him face to face and giving his life to Jesus, everything changed. And he knew that in that point... His life was never going to be the same again. He knew that in that point that it would cost him dearly. It says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We'll go to Romans 12 verse 2. So Paul, he wrote the book of Romans to the Romans, as we've just looked at in a fair bit of detail over the past half a year. So very famous verse, Romans 12 verse 2, and this is where it really comes home. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, this is where, with sort of setting that foundation, you could actually then come and actually apply this in so many different ways. I could come and say, how are you going personally with your walking God? Is that according to the pattern of heaven and what God wants for your life. I could do a, a marriage series and say, you know, is your marriage being built according to the pattern of God or is it according to the pattern of this world? 
So we see here in Romans 12 verse 2, there's two very clear patterns. There's a, there's a pattern of the world and there's a, you know, a pattern from heaven as we've sort of seen. God reveals things how he wants to build. Or are we building according to the ways world, the, the, ways, the world's ways and are we following that pattern? I could talk about, you know, you could do a business seminar and say, are you building according to the pattern in the way that you conduct business? I could talk about parenting. I could, you know, you, the list goes on and on as to how this could be applied. But today, I really want as a church to sort of take this as a church collectively to say, here as a body of believers at Hills Baptist Church, Allgate, where are we at? What is the pattern that we are following as we look into the future, years, months, years, even decades down the track as a, as a body of believers here in terms of what we are building together? Are we here in and conducting ourselves in such a way that we don't think beyond next Sunday or are we thinking much bigger where we're actually thinking about our children? Are we thinking about the next generation? Are we thinking about those who are not in church today, who don't know God, but desperately need him. What is our vision and, and how will we get there? So there's a few points here that I want to pick up that I um, want to highlight that I believe God wants to say to us today for us to take hold of in how we move forward and how we apply ourselves to, to building the vision that God has for us. The first one is this, and this is, it's a funny thing how language affects your understanding. And if everyone's, if you, you know, if you talk to someone tomorrow at work and they say, how was your weekend? Good. What did you do? Spent time with the family, spent some time in the garden. And then you, and then you said, what did you do on Sunday? I went to church. And it's funny how our language, I think, I think really does affect our understanding when really, like theologically, like it's, it's a silly thing to say. Like, did you go to church or did you meet with the church like to be correct we probably should be saying i went to a building and met with the church or um what did you do on sunday i met with the church like it's not a building like it, and it's you know it's it's funny how it does change your thinking so the first thing i want to say is that we actually get this right that as a body of believers here that we have a very clear understanding of what church is the church is not a building, it's not a business, it's not an organisation, but it's the group of people who have been called out of the world and are moving forwards in their walk with God to their calling and purpose in God who meet together. You know, there's no... That's the church. It is a body of people. I love the word um, used in the scripture for church. It's the word ecclesia, and it comes from two root words... The first one is ek, and the second is kaleo. Now, I just want to spend a, a minute on this because I think it's really quite powerful because when you understand, okay, you say, you think church, okay, let's get our understanding right first that the church is not the building, it's the body, it's the people, it's the body of believers. But then what's the meaning of that word, ecclesia, the church? And it's actually an extremely dynamic word. It's not a, a static word but there's almost movement in the meaning of the word. So the first part of it, so remember this, ecclesia, the first part, ek, basically is where you'd get to say the word exit. So it means almost by definition, 
if you're in the church, you've come out of something. By definition. Like that's the word that was chosen to describe the group of believers that follow Jesus. There's an ex- there's an exit. By definition, if you're in the church, you've exited something. Now, I think sometimes in our Christian life, you might think that it stops there. Like, that would probably be a sufficient definition for many churches. We're no longer in the world. But it doesn't stop there. And the second part of it is the kaleo. And that, that root word, basically, it's a, it's a call, it's a summons, and it's an invitation. So there's this almost two tensions. It's in terms of, I have left this, and then the other part of it as a church, we're being called, we're being summoned, we're being invited to where God is bringing us. Our vision, our mission, according to his pattern. Okay, number two, that as a church, uh, that we as a church, it's built into our mission statement that we will be disciples. As part of our life group, we've been following a series, but there's just this one summary that I love within that series, which is reoccurring, that discipleship is essentially, could be summed up in three things. Number one, it's being with Jesus, truly knowing him and spending time with him. Number two, it's becoming like Jesus. And number three, it's doing what Jesus did. So if you think, in essence, that summarises... The whole Christian life, that discipleship, it's being with Jesus, becoming like him, and then doing what he did. And you don't just take any one of those three things. Some people might try to do what he did, but don't spend time with him or become like him. Sometimes people might try to spend time with him, but then almost forget and you know spend too much time alone on a mountain, but then there's no becoming like, and there's no doing what he did. But really, I think a solid definition and understanding of discipleship has to consist of all three things. So as a church, I want us to think about our discipleship, think about our following after Jesus and what it means to be come, being with Jesus, to become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. Now, there's one thing about building that I've learnt through just my work at home in the, gar- in the garden and the renovations in our house And it's this simple principle. If you want to build and there's something there already, there's always demolition. Or similarly, anyone who's ever done work in the garden, if you want to plant up a garden and it's overgrown with weeds, the first thing is to actually pull up the weeds. I want to read... um, Hang on, before I do that, I want to read a quote from... No, no, I'll read a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I thought was particularly compelling... And this was from his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this, We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but he is determined to carry out quite a different plan. To shrink back from that plan is not humility, it is laziness and cowardice. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania, It is obedience. He goes on to say, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew what those jobs jobs needed. 
you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I don't know, I hope and I pray that what's on my heart I've been able to get across today, that God has a pattern. We as a church have a responsibility to pursue that, to seek him, to understand it. It's not the world's pattern, it's different, it's a heavenly pattern. And I pray that in our personal life, in our, our walk with God, in our marriages, in our workplaces, that we seek God in all things. I was reading recently about John Wesley. He was the founder of the, the Methodist Church and his, his um, biography is quite remarkable. He was born in about 1703 and at about the age 20 he was determined to become a cleric of the Anglican Church. And even from a very young age he had a remarkable fervour and passion in his pursuit of God. He, he started this club, he called it the Holiness Club and it's quite remarkable. It's quite convicting to read because him and a group of friends were absolutely determined to live a holy life. And the name, the Methodist Church, where that came was, was how incredibly focused and disciplined he was in actually carrying that out in his study of the scriptures, in the ordering of his days, in the self-examination of his own heart, in the way that he um, would systematically ensure that he was implementing the virtues that he knew he needed to, to undertake. Now, his story is particularly interesting because at the age of 20, that's sort of when that, all that stuff was happening. He was passionate for God. He was involved in the holiness club. But then, and he, he studied to be a cleric. And then probably at about the age of 32, he actually travelled to the, uh, the America, America, early days of the colony there. And on the ship over there... His, he had great ambitions in America to, you know, to convert people, to change people's lives. And on the ship on the way over... Now, this is not like travelling today. You could imagine being on a ship and there was multiple times when they truly feared for their lives. You know, you'd be across an o o the high seas in a small wooden ship and water is crashing over and water is just coming in and flooding the rooms. And there was a group of people on that ship who he met and he talked with the Moravians. And they actually were a branch of believers that came out of the Lutheran church and were wholly committed in their discipleship after Christ. And they were somewhat more, I guess, mystical in their experience. And I guess, and when we say that word, I think sometimes it could be misunderstood. But really, their understanding that we walk with Jesus and experience his presence. And even though Wesley, he had, he had the, the best theological training that you could have. He knew everything. He was devoted in his life to following Christ. And yet on that boat, he realised he did not have peace. He saw that 
all of them, the men, the women, the children, had a peace that he did not have when they faced death. And after a short time in America, where really it was an absolute failure, he returned back to England. And after... Um, so that was about the age of... He was about 32, I, I think. And then a few years... It was a, a couple of years later where he... Well, in that period, he went through an absolute crisis of faith. He, he didn't know what was going on. He, he knew probably the Bible, dare I say, better than any of us. He had studied, but he still didn't have that peace. He didn't have that knowledge of God. And it was only a few years later that he actually had an experience with God, with the Holy Spirit, that changed his life forever, where in his words and his understanding that his experience beforehand, he felt like he never was even saved. And he was criticised around that. But the point was, his experience was, he'd been a Christian all of his life, then God did something that completely turned his world upside down and the impact that that has had on history and on the church from, from the time that follows, they say that probably because of the preaching um, of Wesley and Whitfield at that time where there was a massive revival throughout England and America, but in England in particular, it was because of their preaching and all the people that were impacted by the word of God, they probably prevented having a bloody revolution like happened in France a few decades later. It, it changed people's hearts and it arguably changed the course of history because one man had an encounter with Jesus. It says that he preached over 40,000 messages in that few, his lifetime and I thought this was remarkable. They say that he travelled 400,000 kilometres on horseback do you know what the circumference of the earth is? It's about 40,000 kilometres. I'm like, seems to... Anyway, God changed his life. He had an encounter with Jesus that changed him forever. Okay, in bringing this to a close, I want to turn to Luke 14, 25 to 34. Luke 14... Luke 14. This is about the cost of being a disciple. So Luke 14, 28 to 33. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off, and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he, he has cannot be my disciple. Maybe the musicians could come up and maybe if we could all stand as we close. To say, it may be that even if you've been in the church all your life, or if you're listening online, that you have never committed to following Jesus, to being a disciple. And I'm not talking about coming to church. 
I'm not talking about being a good person. I'm talking about making the decision, making the choice to say, Jesus, I am going to follow you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength, whatever the cost. Like we read in that parable, we need to count the cost of following Jesus. So as we come into this time of worship, if you're in this church or listening online and you have never, ever given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to do so, to not leave this place today. It can be in your own words. It can be as we go sing through another song to say, Jesus, come into my life. I want to follow you. So I invite people to do that today. The second thing that was on my heart was there's people here today and you know God is calling you. You know God has spoken to you. You know there's things that you need to do. You know there's words that God has spoken to you that you haven't fully embraced, haven't fully grappled with. In other words, you know your own disobedience. (laughs) And you also know that because of that, it's actually stunting your spiritual growth. You're in sort of a holding pattern. You're sort of frustrated. You know there's things that aren't quite right with your own heart before God because of the things that you're um, that, that are in your life that are like the weeds that need to be pulled up or like the buildings that are not part of the plan that need to be demolished. And as we come into this time of worship, I want you to think about the weeds in your life that need to be pulled up. I want you to think about the things in your life that need to be adjusted and demolished in order to make way for you to follow Jesus fully. The third thing is this. Um, there's you might feel like everything is fine, that there's no, no weeds in your garden, there's no buildings to be demolished, and that you're good, and that you know, you're, you're at church every week. But similar to what I said before, there's things that God is calling you to. So the, the second point that I mentioned was really about um, things you're doing wrong, you know, commission, things that you're doing wrong. This third point is about omission, things that you need, know you need to be doing, but you're not. And you know that because you're not doing those things that you're being held back. So I don't want this to be a message that just sort of goes out and then nothing happens. My prayer is that in the next song that you really reflect, really reflect and do business with God today, whatever it is. We're all on a journey, you know, the hundred or so of us that are here. But I truly believe that when we walk with Jesus as a church, that we can truly fulfill the mission that God has called us to, fulfill that vision, and that the impact that God wants to have through his church is far beyond anything that we could ask for or imagine. But it does rely on us following Jesus with wholehearted obedience. I'll close in prayer and then we'll go into a time of worship. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.